morning, friends. I, it, I want to echo Mark's words about family. I, I know many of you have been here for a long time, and, and you probably feel that way already, but I know some of you are first-timers, and I hope somehow, even in the first time, you sense that, um, that there's some of the warmth and love of God here. And uh, indeed, this could be family. In fact, I met someone for the first time today through mutual friends. We're almost family already. I mean, the friends, friendships are so close and everything. And so my prayer, I know it's a supernatural thing. You could come into a place like this that's full of people and, and know no one and feel like you left cold. And my prayer is that you feel, when you leave, you feel uh, you've, you've um, experienced a love from people. But more than that, I also pray that each of you would experience God's presence here today. And you would hear from God. You would hear from God. Let me, let me catch us up where we've been three months now. We've talked about what it's like to follow Jesus. Um, and we've talked about how to follow him, it always means that there are frequent steps into the deep. There are frequent times of having to be bold, having to take risks, having to go where feet may fail. That's just what faith is. We've been in the book of Acts for this time. Acts is this book that unfolds right after Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead. In the very first uh, chapter of it, Jesus ascends to heaven, and, and the church begins for the very first time. That's where Acts is at. We've been in, in it for three months now. Today we come to uh, chapter 5 in Acts, and there are these first 11 verses in chapter 5. If you've read them before, you're going to resonate when I reread them uh, about this response. The first response most of us have, and maybe the second and third and fourth is, that is really puzzling. What is possibly going on there? And the second thought we have is that is very disturbing. And most of us, after reading it, decide just to put those 11 verses on a shelf and try to forget about them. But there's this lingering discomfort about what was that all about? So we're going to go there today. I'm going to read those 11 verses and I'll give a little commentary as we go. But I think that there's, there's some truth here that could cause us to do a couple of things very, very boldly because of what we learned from this. And so this is Acts 5, 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it and follow along if you'd like. Okay, hey, let me give you one more thing of background. The few verses right before this, the end of chapter 4, uh, it says there's such unity in the church, there's such closeness, such a sense of family, and such generosity poured out of love that people don't consider what they have to even be their own. And the norm has begun for them to take whatever they have, if they have surplus, and make it available for those that have need. It's this stunning time of this sense of unity and this generosity. And, and it even ends with this example, the last couple of verses in four, this example of a man named Joseph, who's called Barnabas. And it says that he has this field, and he sells the field, and he brings it to the church and says, just use all of these funds for anyone in need. Use this for the cause of the church for anyone that's in need. And so that finishes chapter 4, rolls right into chapter 5. But, chapter 5, but there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. So Ananias and Sapphira, they see what's going on with generosity. 
And maybe they see the affirmation and applause to a guy like Barnabas that sells a field, gives it all. And so, and so they take some property and they sell it. And they give what probably is a substantial amount of it to, to this cause of the church and to those in need. It's this huge generosity. It's a huge thing to do. They, they just do one, one, I would suggest, very, very small thing. They, they exaggerate. Oh, okay, that's not quite honest. That's a nice word for they They lie about it, and so they, they just say, we sold the property, here's all of it, we're giving it all away. Uh, and and I, I'm not sure how bad that sounds to you, but uh, this may not, you may not like me saying this, but it doesn't sound that bad to me. <laughs> it's a lie, it's wrong, but I, I look at my life, I've done a lot worse things than that, and you have too, a lot worse things than that. It'd be like one of us having a spare car and say it's yours, and you sell it for $5,000, and you bring 4000 into the church office and say, hey, I sold this car. Here's all the money from the car, and you keep 1000 Oh, it's a lie, but, but what generosity. Uh, if, if that's the worst thing you ever did, uh, then you are so, so far ahead of me and so far ahead of all the rest of us. That's what they, that's what they did. And, and so there are a couple of other things that come out of this. One, I, I would suggest it's not like they killed someone. Okay, it's not like they killed someone. And then Peter brings out that, that a sin against anyone is also a sin against God. He says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. I bet Ananias is thinking, where was the Holy Spirit? I thought I just lied to you. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Then he wraps it up by saying, you weren't lying to us, but to God at the end of, of verse 4. But you were lying to God. Every, every sin is a sin against God, something that I need to let soak in, and you do as well. A, a sin is most likely against some person, maybe even against yourself, but it always is also a sin against God. That's what Peter's telling him. It's his sin against God. And so he's confronted Ananias. I'll pick up in verse 5. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. My first thought is, did God just kill him? Did, did God just take him out because he lied? He was very generous, gave a bunch of money, but did God take him out? And my thought would be, no, surely not. He probably had a heart condition that they didn't know about, and there was this sudden stress that hit him, and bam, and his ticker quit, and he died, and just, just pure coincidence of timing. But, but it makes you wonder, did God take this guy out for that sin? And then you read on and wish you hadn't read on. <laughs> About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church. No kidding. <laughs> and everybody else who heard what had happened. It seems to make it clear that both of them, God kills both of them because of this sin that doesn't begin to compare with the depths of sin that all of us have committed. That he's killed both of them. And if there was any doubt, there's only one parallel of something happening in all of Scripture like this. And it's back in the Old Testament. It's in Joshua chapter 7. 
And back in Joshua chapter 7, it's Old Testament people. These were the Old Testament people of God. They had just entered the promised land, and their entire role was to reflect the love and light and goodness of God to the world. They've just entered the promised land, and this one man sins. It's the first time there's any evidence of sin when they entered the promised land. This one man sinned, and God kills him in Joshua 7. And now in New Testament, people of God, they've just now begun to be the church, and their major role is to show the love and grace and light and power of God. And the first time sin shows up, then then God, God takes them out. He simply takes them out. What what? What is going on here? There, there are two main things I want to bring out to us. I think God wants us to let soak in deeply and be profoundly impacted by today. The, the first thing is this. There's this crucial reminder there was to the church on that day 2,000 years ago, and God wants her to be to us, the church, today as well, 2017. There was this crucial reminder that sin kills. Sin kills. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it's, only, it's the second chapter of the entire Bible. God has created this perfect world. He's put Adam in this perfect world, and, and there's no sin, and there's no death, and there are no tears, and no sorrow. It's this perfect world. And God says this to Adam. It says, well, it says, the Lord placed the man, Adam, in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you are sure to die. God said in the very beginning, if you sin, if you go counter to the direction I give you, if you sin, then you are sure to die. And so there's this, there's this huge reminder that sin kills. In fact, that was the beginning of, of physical death on this planet, which you and I will all experience one day because of sin, and we've just added to the sin. So there's this, there's this physical death, more importantly than that, there was this spiritual death, that, that there was this separation of relationship between Adam and God, and Eve and God, and that's simply what sin does. Sin causes this separation from God, and if it doesn't get closed, if it doesn't get fixed, when someone does die physically, then they enter this eternity apart from God, this godless eternity. It's this massive, massive spiritual death problem comes from it. It's not just that. It's, I would suggest to you, and you know this too, that sin can kill relationships, can't it? Sin can kill unity. Sin can kill trust. Sin can kill joy. Sin can kill peace. Sin can kill one's health, and on and on and on. There's this massive reminder that sin kills. Sin always diminishes, damages, and destroys. And the first half of John chapter 10, verse 10, it says that the enemy, which is Satan, has come to steal and kill and destroy. And the whole, whole role of Satan is to get you to do something apart from God's plan for you, uh, to get you to sin. His whole plan is to steal and kill and destroy. Sin always diminishes, damages, and destroys. And, and so the message for them that day, the message for us, is that we are prone to take sin casually. We are prone to treat sin casually. And on that day, they had a massive wake-up call they would never forget the rest of their lives. God was, was saying to them again, there's this reminder, you must, you must know, you must remember, you must never take sin casually because sin kills. Sin kills. Okay. 
That, that's the first thing. That's this first massive reminder. Bad news. Sin kills. Be aware of that. Do not take it casually. The, the second crucial reminder is this, and this one is really, really good news. And think about, about the setting that they were in before I say this to you. Uh, they were m- maybe weeks or at the most perhaps months away uh, from Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and as they would ponder what had just happened to two of their friends in that church that just died, there would be this fresh reminder to them of Jesus, though, had just died and risen to forgive sin. And so there was this crucial reminder that Jesus saves. While sin kills, I mean, Jesus saves. And they would have an unforgettable image in their mind, those of them, and there were many in the church, that actually had seen Jesus hanging on a cross, this, this horrific reality of this God-man, Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on the cross, dying. They would have this image, and they'd be reminded of how deeply he loves them. And the price he paid, the price he paid to save them. And the ones that hadn't seen him hanging there had seen many others. It was an easy step of imagination to imagine what he'd gone through for them, this deep, deep love for them. How much he loves them and the price he paid to save them from sin, the damages of sin, and all that. I I found myself trying to even imagine that because I've never and don't expect I will ever see someone on a cross. And so I I found myself thinking about those that I've seen um, sacrifice back many years ago when Marie and I, I'd left business world and finished seminary and begun some ministry life. And and there was a couple who helped Marie and I out financially. It It was a huge, huge help to us. But after we received the help, I would watch this husband driving around town with the oldest, most battered-up vehicle in the whole community. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And every time I saw it, I thought of the sacrifice. I thought the expression of love. Uh, what they gave us, they could have put that toward a better vehicle than that. And to this week when I was pondering it, uh, it deeply moved me, even talking about it now, it deeply moves me of, of that kind of love. But I understand that's not even a drop in the ocean to the love of Jesus. The love expressed, we sang about it, didn't we? I mean, the Lamb of God who bled for me, we just sang about that. The, the love, and, and as they were impressed by it, God would have us be impressed by it too, is, is that Jesus is the one who saves. And this is really important for all, all of us to understand, the fact that he died and rose didn't mean that they were saved. He died and rose for them, but they had to trust their life to him. They had to place their faith in him, which means that they had to ask him to forgive their sins and to lead their lives. They had to ask him to forgive their sins and lead their lives. And there's this imagery that's given in Acts chapter 4 that I want to build upon today that will help us, I think, come to grasp of this and, and come to grips with this story we've talked about already. In, in Acts 4, verse 11, it says this. It says, For Jesus is the one referred to in the Scriptures, where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Okay? The stone you builders have rejected has now become the cornerstone. And they would be familiar with the use of a cornerstone in their days. I'm not a construction guy, but I understand that cornerstones, if they're ever used now, it's for ceremonial purposes to signify something, but it doesn't really play played in biblical times. A cornerstone in their times was more like our foundation of a building. 
A cornerstone was, was what you had to have, and you had to have it solid and secure and, and immovable and indestructible because you'd build your entire structure around the cornerstone. There's a, an image of one right here. The cornerstone would be literally the very first stone you'd put in place. It'd be on the corner of the building, and, and every single additional stone put in place would be, it would have to be in alignment with the cornerstone. Every single additional brick put in place would have to be in complete, absolute alignment with the cornerstone. And you had to be careful what kind of cornerstone you picked. It had to be flawless. It had to be unbreakable. This is the kind of structure that they, they hoped that they were building because they had a worthy cornerstone. Everything would align to this flawless, indestructible cornerstone. But they'd seen enough buildings to realize that sometimes this is what you got instead to realize that someone picked the wrong cornerstone. It wasn't flawless. It wasn't indestructible. And and the cornerstone would begin to fracture and begin to break, and the entire building would begin to collapse around it. They'd seen enough of these. And so when they would hear that Jesus had become the cornerstone, and and they, they understood what faith was, to trust him to forgive and to trust him to lead their life, it'd be an easy step to think about this cornerstone and they were to make him the cornerstone of their life and then have him align every aspect of their life with him. Every part of their life, every thought, every word, every action, to have it in complete alignment with him, the perfect cornerstone. I mean, that, that's the image that's given. And, and, and these people, the church, they had done that. They'd placed their faith in him. They'd say, you be our cornerstone. I mean, bring everything about our life into alignment with you. So, so there was this massive reminder to them that Jesus saves, okay? Now, I want to take it farther than that, and I want to give you specifically two ways that he saves. The first way is this, that, that he saves us and he saves them from condemnation. Okay? He saves from condemnation, and I'll try to help you understand what I mean when I say that word. I give you a passage, Romans 8, 1 says, now there's no condemnation for one who belongs to Jesus. There's no condemnation for one who has made Jesus the cornerstone of their life. There's no condemnation. Let me, let me try to illustrate it this way, perhaps. Many, many years ago, Marie and I bought a house. Uh, we looked at the house, and, and uh, this is what our house looked like. It was a few years old, so we hired a reputable inspector, and he came and inspected the house, and a few days later gave us the report, and he said, this is the house you're buying. But unfortunately, some people had been very clever about how they had covered things up. And a year or two later, this is the house that we lived in. This is the house we lived in. And so we had some repair people come out, and they gave me a bill that was, it had more digits than I ever imagined. And I said, well, uh, break it down for me. How can it cost them to break it down for me? And and so they broke it down in these big chunks, and the, the biggest chunk by far was the foundation, was we replaced the foundation. I thought, oh, I don't even see that. Like, all that money, so I don't even see. Like, can, can we just, can we do the rest? And, and they said, if you build on this flawed, broken foundation, you might as well condemn the house now because the day will come it will be condemned. The entire building will be condemned. It doesn't matter how many times you try to rebuild on top of it again and again. It will always collapse because the foundation itself is broken. The foundation doesn't have the integrity to hold this up. 
It, this, this property, unless you, unless you redo the foundation, this property is, will be condemned someday. You can condemn it now or later if you're not going to pay the price to change the foundation out. And, and so there's, there's this analogy around, around Jesus and how he saves us. When any of us comes to him and says, I want you to be the cornerstone I want you to take the pieces, fractured pieces of my life and align them with you. Then we've taken a life, we've taken the stuff above that's all fractured and broken like this, and, but we're taking that kind of life that's broken and we're, we're putting on top of this kind of cornerstone. And, and what Scripture says is that, is that because he is flawless and he is righteous, then, then he imparts to us the full coverage of that righteousness. And there's still a broken life and shattered life, and there's still some sin that's not yet catching up to where we hope to someday be and everything. But Scripture says again and again that, that it's because of the, the righteousness of the cornerstone that, that, that nothing will ever be condemned about that structure, about that house, about that life. There is no condemnation for that life. Not because what's above the surface is finally perfect and right. It's because the cornerstone is perfect and flawless and right. Because the cornerstone's right, he forgives everything else above the surface that's still flawed. This complete, total forgiveness. It's it's because of him that we're saved. It's because of him and his perfect righteousness that we are fully forgiven. And there are a number of you in this room that you have made him your cornerstone. Maybe recently, maybe a long time ago. And, And this very week, Satan has been hammering you about some sin and the shame of that sin, and, and you've been battling the shame of that. And, and here's, here's the bold thing to do. The truth is there is no longer any condemnation of you. Take that shame to Jesus and, and leave it with him. Take it to him and leave it with him. His intent is that every single ounce of your energy and thought process would be Jesus Take one more aspect of my life that's out of alignment, put in alignment. I'm not going to worry about the shame of the past. I'm not going to worry about those sins that those are old and done. I'm not going to let that suck the life out of me. I'm not going to believe those lies. There's, there's no more condemnation now. Now here, help me put this in alignment now, Jesus. Boldly take any kind of shame to him. He, he saves us from condemnation. Even Ananias and Sapphira, the couple that uh, had to check out early in chapter 5, if, if they had made him their cornerstone and God took them out on that day, uh, what happened to them a moment after they were taken out? Heaven, right? Heaven. I mean, they had trusted Jesus. They were fully forgiven. Uh, one moment they're staying there, they're standing there telling a small lie. Next moment they're in heaven. And, and maybe you're thinking about, well, they got a raw deal. Everyone else in that church, just like this church, everyone else sinned. God picked on them. They got a raw deal. Well, you'll get to meet them if you're a follower of Jesus, if, if he's your corner. You get to meet them one day, and you can ask them, do you get a raw deal? And, and, and this is what I think you're going to find, what I'm going to find from them. I think they're going to say, wait a minute, <laughs> from heaven's perspective. They're going to say, like, how long have you been here? <laughs> have you looked around? Looked around how good it is? Love like another, joy, peace, grace, unity, all of this stuff. Do you know what I left early down below? 
And they wouldn't even have to mention the persecution that the ones left down below had to begin walking through. It was horrific then. If you ask Ananias and Sapphira, if they were followers of Jesus, they, they went right to heaven. And their word's going to be, all I have is gratitude and thanksgiving and worship for him in heaven. Jesus saves us from condemnation, but there's more than that. There's one more thing I want us to grasp from this today. It's important because of this. If, if I begin to follow Jesus and the above ground, above cornerstone part of my life looks like this, and now he's my cornerstone and looks like this, if I, if I begin to try to rebuild, I want to end up with a structure that looks more and more like this as the years unfold. But if I find that while he's the perfect cornerstone, I don't align an action with him, a new fracture is going to form, isn't it? Uh, not align with him just means to sin. If I sin, there's going to be a new fracture that forms and someone gets hurt and my house is not the house I hope it longs to be and everything. And it, right? You get it? Uh, in other words, he's the cornerstone. We got this wreckage. We're trying to rebuild it. And his, his intent is that we would align every new brick exactly with him. But if we don't, then there's just another fracture, another break, and all that stuff. Well, here's the good news, is that Jesus saves us from the power of sin. It's a term that Scripture uses. Jesus saves us from the power of sin. And by that, it means that he gives us the power to, to, to leave behind the sins we've been doing, bit by bit by bit. If you have been following him for a while, you recognize that some seem hard to leave behind, don't they? Don't some seem like they, I do them again and again and again? And Scripture says that you're not a hopeless case in this because, because he actually, he has the power available for you to overcome whatever that sin is. You, you can take the next brick and you can hear him say, this is how I want it aligned. And you can actually change the game and align that brick with what he has to say. You can do that. You can do that. Every, every bit in alignment with him. And, and normally all it means is just boldly coming to him with, with this next step of life, or this next decision, this next choice, and say, what does alignment look like? And when he tells you, you just you, you put it in place. How do I, how do I treat my wife at lunch today. I'm tired. I feel grumpy. How do I treat her at lunch? Oh, oh, okay. That's, that's how you want me to do it. You know, uh, just step by step by step. But there's some that, some sin, and it probably varies from person to person which ones seem most difficult. For some would say that the ones that seem to keep coming back, maybe they are the addictions, maybe for some, maybe it's the pride keeps creeping back in. Maybe it's the greed keeps creeping back in. Maybe it's the self-promotion keeps coming back. Maybe it's the gossip or on and on and on and on. And, and Scripture clearly lays out another step to take. If you find it's not been enough to go just, just to Jesus, there's this other step that brings community involved. James 5.16. I call this CPR for tough sin. James 5.16. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power, produces wonderful results. This is what he's saying. Okay, if this is a tough sin, and, and I know what mine have most recently been, you know what yours have most recently been as well, if it's a tough sin. First, 
confess your sins to each other. In other words, another, another person is follower of Jesus. It be a, can be a scary deal. You want to be careful who you choose. You want to choose someone who's trustworthy, someone that loves Jesus and loves you, someone that will keep a, a confidence about something. You want to choose carefully. But it says very clearly, I confess your sins to each other. And to confess means just to acknowledge this is a sin, what I've, what I've been doing, what I'm likely to do again. This is a sin. This is wrong. This is not in alignment. And it's to say that not just to Jesus, but to say it to somebody else to one who is a brother or a sister in this faith, to say it to them as well. Confess your sins to each other. And second, it says, pray for each other so that you may be healed. That's, that's the P. That's the CPR. That's the P part. It, pray for each other so that you may be healed. And, and so you would be praying about where you want your life to unfold, and, and, and this person you've shared would be praying for the same for you. If they've shared their struggles, then you would be praying for them as well. They pray for each other that you might be healed. In this context, heal means to, to be able to be in alignment on that tough one. And then it says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And, and results isn't the R of CPR, but, but what's suggested by producing wonderful results is, is that someone actually has, has repented of the direction they've been going to repent means to, to take a 180 from the way you usually go and go in the opposite direction. And so if this is a tough sin, I've been, I've been getting it wrong again and again and again. The wonderful result would be to repent or to do a 180. I, I've opened my heart up to a friend and said, this one is tough and, and it's wrong. I don't want to do it. Pray with me. And, and in that time and everything, God says, I'll give you power to actually to repent. I'll give you power to actually to produce the wonderful results that you long for and Jesus longs for you to have. That's the CPR of this. Some of you, today, you've been thinking about this image over here and some of you have been identifying with this image as it is right now. And you've been thinking about your life and, and about what you've made the cornerstone of your life. It's been, it's been the guiding force of your life. It's, it's been what you've leaned upon most or sought most of the guiding force of your life. And you've recognized that what you've been leaning upon, what you've been building around is broken and fractured. And you're looking at the results of that. And you're seeing the walls have begun to crumble as well. And maybe it's not the first cornerstone you tried. Maybe it's the second or the third or the fourth. And the reason God has you here today is to tell you there's, there's only one flawless, unbreakable cornerstone upon which you and I can place our life and have our life built through it, and it's Jesus. And God's brought you here today for you to, to whisper this authentic prayer to him and say, I, I will trust you to forgive all of my sins, no longer condemned. I'll trust you to forgive all my sins, and I'll trust you to lead my life. In other words, to bring my life detail by detail over time into alignment with you. And if that's the honest prayer of your heart, then the, the very Son of God meets you in that moment and, and every sin forgiven. And, and you, have, you have made the very anchor and cornerstone of your life the one flawless, unbreakable cornerstone that exists. That's why he brought you here for that step. 
Some of you are, are here, and you've made Jesus the cornerstone of your life. Uh, this, this is the cornerstone, and with all of us, the, the top part, when we make him a cornerstone, the top part looks like this. And you've been asking him to bring pieces into alignment, and you're having to deconstruct some stuff that's broken and shattered. You're having to, having to build new structures and new rooms and new walls. And, and he's brought you here to deeply impress upon you, don't take sin casually. Because every time you misalign a brick, you've just created another little microfracture. If you add another brick out of line, the microfracture gets bigger and bigger. It just causes damage. Just don't go. He's brought you to remind you, don't take it casually. He's brought you here to remind you to, to passionately go to him. No, he's the only one that can make the house of your life look more and more like this. He's the only one. Detail by detail, step by step by step by step. And some of you are here, and, and you're in the process of doing this, and you understand the gravity of sin, and you're not taking it casually, and you're yearning to have him take the next item of your life and put it in line. But you've been dragged down by this guilt because you know all the wreckage that you caused. He brought you here to know there is no longer any condemnation for you. Fully forgiven, fully forgiven. May take it to him and leave it with him. Leave it there. Walk away from it. No condemnation. God is the kind of God that knows you so well and loves you so much. He brought you here for a very specific person, purpose, a very specific purpose. And he desires a, a very specific response. What is the purpose for which he brought you? What is the response he's calling you to? You have to know this. There is only one perfect cornerstone, and his name is Jesus. There's only one flawless cornerstone, and his name is Jesus. There's only one unbreakable cornerstone. His name is Jesus. How will you respond to him this day? Father in heaven, I, I know, I know that you have spoken, not me, but you've spoken, and I know that you've spoken tenderly and yet clearly in every heart, and I know that, that you're, uh, you're offering good news. Maybe it comes with a, the hard reminder that sin kills. Maybe we have to hear that, be reminded of that, know that first, but, but, but you've brought good news today that your son Jesus saves saves us from the condemnation of that sin, saves us from the wreckage of that sin, that he is the cornerstone, the perfect, flawless, unbreakable cornerstone. Even now, may some be saying, for the first time authentically, Jesus, be my cornerstone. I trust you to forgive me and lead me. From now on, you're my cornerstone. Father, in this room, some saying, uh, thank you that the condemnation's gone. Help me walk away from it, leave it with you. Some in this room are, are saying, I've, I've been taking sin casually, and, and I'm paying a price, and others are paying a price because there's always, always damage when the fracture begins. And, and may, may those of us be saying, we will no longer take it casually, every single part. We long for you to bring into alignment because you are the cornerstone. You're the righteous one. We, we only have standing because of you 
and your perfection in righteousness. You are our cornerstone, Jesus. I pray all this with great hope and high expectations in Jesus' name. Amen.